Hello, everyone, and welcome to Uncle Mark's Attic. Everyone is cordially invited to join co-host Zach and me, Uncle Mark, as we explore a variety of interesting topics from the fields of paranormal activities, conspiracy theories, unsolved mysteries and disappearances, and lots more. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Uncle Mark's Attic. Feel free to reach out and contact us with your questions and suggested topics. We would love to hear from you. So come on into the attic with us now as we go exploring and find out what mysteries we will be discovering today. Today's episode is on the plot to seize the White House. So, quick disclaimer. Um, we did just shoot our intro video, and uh, we shoot videos, you know what I mean, a lot of the times back-to-back, -back, so we are not wearing the same clothes, <laughs> just so everyone is aware. We're not. We're not. We're, we're cleanly people. We're clean. So I just want to let that be known that we do record sometimes multiple episodes in one day. All right. So. Do you want us to set up a GoFundMe page for, <laughs> please donate to Zach Shirt's GoFundMe page. <laughs> All right. So The Plot to Seize the White House is the title of the book here. Um, published in 1973 and is written by Jules Archer. This is where we got most of the information for today's uh, podcast episode. So if you're interested in, in purchasing that, maybe go ahead and do that. Um, subtitle, The Shocking True Story of the Conspiracy to Overthrow Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, Jules Archer was an American author who wrote a number of historic, historical books that were aimed at general audiences, and some of the books were aimed at young adults. Uh, he was a World War II veteran who served in the Army Air Corps in the Pacific Theater. Uh, Time Magazine referred to the book as fascinating and alarmingly true. Yeah, we want to start with some historical context. I mean, the central character of this particular topic, this event in American history, was a Marine Major General Smedley Butler. But in order to understand this whole story and what happened in this plot, this conspiracy really, to uh, take control of our government here in the United States, uh, we have to have a little bit of a historical context just leading into it so we can see what exactly was going on that led these people to even consider doing such a thing in our country. So we really have to just, just step back a few years into 1929 uh, when the Great Depression started with the stock market crash in October 29th, 1929. Uh, that was the, that's what most historians and economists would say is the actual beginning official beginning of the Great Depression, which was, without a doubt, the worst economic downturn in the history of, of the entire industrialized word, world, not just the United States. So a lot of people were investors on Wall Street in those days, not just wealthy people, and millions of these people were literally financially wiped out uh, as a result of the Depression. And what happened in our country was people began to hold back on their consumer spending, and what that does is it, it reduces the demand for commercial goods, uh, you know, uh, industrial goods. So output in, output in our country, in both uh, industrial output and factories, um, consumer goods, uh, began to fall also. And this led to people then losing their jobs. So by 1933 in this country, uh, we had about 20% of our workforce was actually unemployed. Somewhere in the area of 15 million adults were unemployed in the United States at that time. 
A lot of banks were failing. The estimate is about half of all the banks in the country actually failed. People would be going them to withdraw their money, and the money wasn't there anymore. The banks were overdrawn, so to speak, on all the money. Uh, wages were falling, and personal debt, of course, was rising for many people. A lot of Americans were having trouble paying the mortgages on their homes, and lenders were foreclosing uh, on these people and foreclosing on the mortgages, the outstanding mortgages. So it was a time of uh, tremendous economic stress for a lot of American people. All right. The United States declared war on Germany on April 16, 1917, entering World War I. 2.8 million Americans served overseas during the war. In 1925, the United States Congress had promised the World War I vets a bonus to be paid in 1945. Due to the Great Depression, many vets were hurting financially and were unemployed. Some were homeless, and a movement began in 1932 among the veterans to seek the bonus now. Veterans began descending on Washington, D.C. in order to pressure Congress into giving the bonus, June, July, 1932. So they set up tents and wooden shacks on open federal land, <coughs> called it Hooverville. Uh, it was a shanty town with veterans and their families. Estimates range from 10,000 to 25,000 people in this Hooverville. Yeah, they called it Hooverville. The president of the United States at that time was Herbert Hoover. And so they purposely named the, uh, the shanty town that they constructed on this open federal land in Washington, uh, Hooverville. What the veterans were trying to do at this point was, uh, because they were hurting financially, was they were lobbying Congress, just like businesses lobby Congress and industries were lobbying Congress in those days. The veterans decided that they had a right to lobby Congress too. Many of them were hurting. Many were homeless. Uh, many of them were having their, you know, they were facing the foreclosures on their homes because they couldn't pay the mortgages. So rather than wait until 1945, which was a long time to wait, Congress had promised them this back in uh, 1925. But uh, at the time, Congress had said because of financial concerns and considerations and budgetary issues, they wouldn't really be able to pay the veterans this bonus until 1945. Well, by 1932, we were certainly in the full throttle of the depression here in our country. There was a lot of these vets hurting. So that's why they went uh, to Washington. And many of them did bring their families, their wives and their children there because they didn't want to be alone. They didn't want, they, they couldn't necessarily even be without them at that point due to their own family situation. So that's why they did that. Now, this is where we start to get into our central character of this whole story. And that's general Smedley Butler. What happened was, um, uh, there was a, one of the veterans groups at that time, the Veterans of Foreign War, which had started after World War I, uh, the head of that uh, organization had invited General Butler to come down to Washington, D.C. and speak to the vets. Major General Butler, by that point, was retired from the Marine Corps. He was an extremely popular officer in the United States military. Uh, some could even argue maybe the most popular officer we ever had in the United States military, certainly up to that point. And Butler was more than happy to come to Washington and speak to the vets. As a Marine Corps officer, he had always placed primary focus on the well-being and care of the soldiers in his care as an officer, and he was well-known for that. He felt very strongly about the veterans in this country. He felt that they had not been treated properly uh, since the end of World War I, and uh, he felt that they definitely deserved that bonus. He did go to Washington then, and he gave a rather fiery speech to the veterans there, at the Hooverville shantytown where they were all uh, located with their families. Um, I always like one of the quotes that General Butler gave during this speech, 
And it was a great speech. And he tended to speak without notes. He could become very fiery and throw some curse words in there. Uh, he told them, quote, you have just as much right to have a lobby here as any steel corporation. It makes me so damn mad. A whole lot of people speak of you as tramps. By God, they didn't speak of you as tramps in 1917 and 1918. And that's when the men were being drafted or being, you know, uh, were being requested to enlist in the United States military, and particularly the Army and Navy, uh, in order to fight in World War I. Uh, he was in full support of the vets at that time. What happened was, at this point in 1932, and like we're talking about June of July of 1932, the House of Representatives in the United States Congress did vote to give the vets this bonus, but the Senate voted that proposal down. So that was the end of the lobbying effort. That was the final word from Congress. They weren't going to give the vets that veterans bonus at this time. They were going to make them wait until 1945. Uh, come July 28th of 1932 then, since Congress has now turned them down, President Herbert Hoover ordered the police in Washington, D.C., and elements of the United States Army under General Douglas MacArthur to drive these veterans, the so-called bonus army, because they were seeking their veterans bonus. He wanted them driven physically out of Washington, D.C. Uh, American soldiers were then uh, sent to push out these American veterans of World War I um, uh, at Bayonet Point. They used tear gas, all of the tents and those wooden shacks that they had built out of old crates and all that, all of those were set on fire, and they physically drove out all of these veterans and their family members from Washington. Two veterans did die. Uh, one died that day. He died instantly from being shot, and another vet that was shot uh, died several days later. Um, General Butler was outraged by this treatment of American veterans, especially this treatment of them by current American soldiers using bayonets and tear gas. Elements of the cavalry were also used on horseback, and they even brought in several tanks with machine guns on them at one point. So this was a rather violent, uh, a rather violent attack on American veterans and their families. And General Butler, it was well known, was a Republican at that time because his father was actually a Republican congressman. His grandfather had even been a Republican congressman at one time. But uh, as a result of... The treatment of these vets, the Bonus Army vets in Washington, D.C., by President Hoover, uh, Butler openly switched his support to the Democratic nominee for president. That was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, governor of New York State. And he actually contacted uh, Governor Roosevelt and volunteered to actually do campaign work for him all around the country. So by the time the 1932 presidential election was over in November, um, General Butler had campaigned in all 48 states in the United States and had given speeches in about 100 cities, um, usually without notes, and they were very fiery speeches with a big emphasis on attacking President Hoover for his treatment of the World War I vets, the Bonus Army veterans in Washington, D.C. Zach, if you want to pick it up from there. Yeah. In November 1932, so we have the presidential election. Uh, so November 1932, President Hoover loses his uh, re-election bid. Uh, the Democratic candidate, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wins in a landslide. Uh, the Democrats take both houses of Congress. Uh, Roosevelt is inaugurated as president on March 4th, 1933. In the first 100 days of his administration, a tremendous amount of legisla legislation was passed as he attempted to stabilize the economy. Uh, these new laws and government programs had the goal of stabilizing industri industrial production and farm production, create jobs, and stimulate 
economic growth. Um, and laws were enacted to reform and regulate their financial system, including banks and the stock market. In order to increase the money supply, the government removed the gold standard. Uh, it would no longer back up every paper dollar bill with a dollar's worth of gold that would be kept in re reserve. All of these new regulations and the removal of the gold standard upset many wealthy people. Uh, they saw Roosevelt as the enemy and as a threat to their fortunes. Uh, and this is what mm -hmm. will lead to some of them to think about how they can stop or remove Roosevelt. Uh, this is what led to the plot to seize the White House. That's very important because uh, when President Roosevelt took over, and in those days the inaugurations of a president weren't until weren't held in, until March. Now we have them in January, you know, when we have an election in the country. But at that time they were still being held in March. But within those first 100 days, what President Roosevelt did was considered so radical by so many people, especially in the financial sector, bankers and, and brokers, stockbrokers and all that. And here he was now uh, in order to stabilize the economy of the United States and to get people back to work. He believed that these things had to be enacted, put into law. He had to regulate banks. He had to regulate the whole financial market. These were not things that these people were used to experiencing. They weren't used to living under these type of laws and regulations. So it was a tremendous backlash against him for what he was doing, especially because in the eyes of many of those people, he was wealthy himself. He had come from money, uh, and they almost, well, not almost, they really did look at him as a personal traitor to people of his own economic class in our country. So the, the bitterness and the hatred of him that developed was real, and that is what, as you said, is leading up now to some of these people, some of them, actually uh, beginning to think about and formulate possibly some sort of a plan. In other words, they're conspiring to do something to either rein Roosevelt in or to push him out of power completely. And we talked about General Butler and his talk to the veterans. We talked about his campaigning for Roosevelt openly through the country. So that leads us really now into a quick overview, a quick little look at who is General Smedley Darlington Butler. What, you know, what is this guy's story who exactly was he, and why is he the central character in this plot that developed as a result of President Roosevelt's New Deal programs? Um, General Butler was born in Pennsylvania, in Westchester, in 1881. And the Butler family were Quakers, and that's very interesting, because the Quakers, that's a nickname, really, for the Religious Society of Friends, uh, are a religious denomination or sect that has always, from their beginnings in the 1600s, emphasized nonviolence and uh, he was definitely brought up in a traditional Quaker way uh, with his Quaker family, and he went to a Quaker school, the Haverford Prep School. He was not quite 16 years old in 1898 when um, the Spanish-American War started. And Smedley Butler decided he was going to be a fighting Quaker, using his conscience that he could justify that sometimes that there is a need, even as a nonviolent Quaker, to, to take up arms, to engage in military activity. And he left school uh, you know, his father wasn't happy about it, but, you know, he let him go. That was very Quaker. And he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps and quickly became a second lieutenant in the U.S. Marine Corps in the Spanish-American War. He did serve uh, in Cuba at that point and then into the Philippines. I won't go through his whole military history because it's, it's quite extensive. Uh, he, spent, he was involved in a number of military campaigns in Central America in Panaga, Panama and Nicaragua for about four years. And uh, these were... Um, really campaigns where the United States was propping up certain governments or certain political factions in those countries uh, that were favored by Washington. So they weren't declared wars, but these were certainly military 
encounters, military engagements uh, in these countries involving our Marines and involving General Butler um, on behalf of the United States' interest in those countries, and as General Butler would later complain, United States' business interest in those countries. Uh, he was actually um, promoted to a brigadier general in 1918. Now that's World War One. He didn't get the assignment he wanted to be in actual military campaigns in World War I, but uh, he was placed in charge of a very large camp in France. It was an uh, embarkation camp. He, uh, a lot of veterans actually got to meet him. Personally, he was that kind of guy. He was very hands-on, very, very uh, available to the soldiers, to enlisted men. That's why he became known as the enlisted men's general. He was very popular. He was very concerned about their personal care, the food that they were getting, the medicine, medical treatment, and all that. It really was a big focus, and I think that was a result of his Quaker background. It really was. Um, his superiors would usually commend him. You know, that he was definitely considered a very brave man. He had tremendous leadership skills, but very often he was more than willing to bend the rules or overlook regulations uh, as the situation required in his mind. So many superiors did kind of consider him a loose cannon on occasion, but no one ever questioned his uh, personal courage or his bravery or his honesty and integrity. So there's a quick review at that point of General Butler up to the year 1923. And this is a story I do want to share with everyone because I think it's an important, gives an important insight into who General Smedley Butler was and why he was so well known. In 1923 in the city of Philadelphia, a newly elected mayor who had run on a campaign pledge of law and order must be restored in our city, uh, asked General Butler to take a leave of absence from the Marines and to take charge to serve as the director of public safety for Philadelphia. That would be in charge of both the police and the fire departments. General Butler had no interest in doing this. He was a Marine and he was going to stay in the Marines. And uh, this mayor was um, the mayor of a city that was uh, definitely going through a lot of problems. This was the era of prohibition when alcohol was outlawed, the sale and manufacture of outlaw, that, that experimental program that the United States uh, went through. So in Philadelphia, as in I think every large city, and, and even in many smaller cities of, of America, you had uh, gangsters running all sorts of gambling operations, brothels, all sorts of illegal bars or speakeasies, as they were called. In Philadelphia, the estimate is that there was over 8,000 locations selling bootleg liquor and beer at that time. Um, to be perfectly honest, as we look back on it and we look through the documentation, these gangsters, these speakeasy operators, uh, the political leaders in Philadelphia, and at that time, Philadelphia was actually controlled by the Republicans. The Republican Party controlled Philadelphia back then, 1923. And um, what's interesting about Philadelphia, the way it was set up was um, the city was divided up into political territories or wards, as they were called, and they still have wards. They had about 46 wards. And in each ward, there would be a police station located for that ward. And the captain of that police station wasn't chosen by the mayor or by the superintendent of the police, the director of public safety. The captain was chosen by that, you know, respective ward leader of that particular ward. So the, the position of captain of each of those police stations was really a political plum that was given to somebody by the uh, Republican ward leader of that ward where the station was located. This was the situation in Philadelphia. Um, Butler said no, but Mayor Kendrick and the uh, the two United States senators from Pennsylvania actually went to Washington and they persuaded President Calvin Coolidge to speak to Butler and push him to take the job, and he did. So Butler did take the job, and he started as the director of public safety in Philadelphia in January of 1924. From the get-go, in his typical fashion, he had his motto, clean up or get out. 
That was his instructions. Those were his words to all of the police officers. He made a point of going to every police station in the city and speaking. He wanted to meet as many of the officers as possible. And in typical Budley, uh, Smedley Butler fashion, he uh, immediately began closing down speakeasies and these illegal gambling operations and all the stuff that was going on in the brothels uh, by the hundreds. He, he really went all out. And there was a problem here. Money. Money was being spread around all over, and everybody seemed to be on the take in the city of Philadelphia at that time. The police, the politicians, the member of city council, the Republican ward leader, certainly, the gangsters, everybody was in on this. So as Butler was trying to tighten up the police force and clean up you know, things in the city of Philadelphia, that was cutting off a supply of money, of graft for many of these people, and this was upsetting them very much. And also, Butler was arresting any number of people that were running these illegal operations. And these people were going into the court system, which was also under political control. So many of these people were not getting really punished at all. Maybe a slap on the wrist, maybe a small fine. But Butler got very frustrated because, quite frankly, you're going through all this trouble of shutting down these operations and arresting these people, and, and they're not really being punished. They're right back out on the streets, and, and the grind continues. The same problems are going on and on and on as he's continuing to fight this uphill battle. Uh, newspapers in Philadelphia at that time, for the most part, were controlled by the politicians or by political interests and big money interests. So the newspapers were very critical of Butler, all but one. And we'll talk about that in a minute because that's an important part of this story is that one newspaper, the Philadelphia Record, that was the only paper that was objective about all this and was praising Butler and uh, giving objective and fair coverage of his activities in the city as he was trying to clean up this mess. Um, pressure began to build on the mayor very quickly to not reappoint Butler for a second term. That would have been for 1925. Uh, and, and there's actually evidence that showed that some of these gangsters and these people that were illegally brewing the beer or distilling liquor, uh, you know, whiskey, um, things like that, uh, were actually made a deal with the Republican State Campaign Committee that they would donate approximately $2 for every barrel of, of illegal beer they produced. It would go into that campaign fund, but only if the Republicans would put pressure on President Coolidge in the White House to have Butler recalled. And at the end of 1925, at the end of his second year as, as the director of public safety, it worked. President Coolidge did announce that he was not going to extend this leave from the Marine Corps for General Butler. Butler was going to have to go back into the Marine Service, and he had to leave Philadelphia. Butler was so determined about what he was doing in Philadelphia, trying to clean out the mess, clean out the corruption, the graft, he actually considered resigning from the Marines at that point and actually staying on as public safety director. And that just was too much. The mayor was under tremendous, measure, uh, tremendous pressure from all the politicians, from the city councilmen, from all the Republican ward leaders, uh, everybody that was losing money with, with Butler being in the city. So the mayor of Philadelphia actually ended up firing it's Medley Butler as the director of public safety, and then he goes back into the Marine Corps. But I wanted to stress that because it just gives you an idea of the character of the man. We're looking back in time now at someone, you know, none of us, for the most part, were probably around back in those days when he's trying to clean up Philadelphia in the 1920s, but he was a Marine. He saw a brick wall, and he would yell charge, and that's just how he looked at this. And the fact that he was facing tremendous odds didn't bother him. Hundreds of churches and, and synagogues in the city of Philadelphia, their congregations, were publicly supporting General Butler and his efforts to clean up the city. They, they were his biggest backers in the city, and he did not want to let those people down. But anyway, he was fired, so back into the Marine Corps he went, and um, he would uh, serve several more years in the Marine Corps. He was over in China. Um, he did a number of things. He was in Mexico, he was in the, uh, in the Caribbean islands, and so, uh, a number of political campaigns. By the time 
Major General Butler retired from the Marines in 1931. He had won 16 military awards, and in that included two Congressional Medals of Honor, the highest award, the highest military decoration that can be stowed on any member of the United States military. He was awarded that twice. And the Medal of Honor, when you, you, if you read about it, uh, this is a decoration that's normally given, and, and it's not given out very often, and it is for people who, in the course of their military work, military efforts in campaign, usually under fire, uh, at the risk of their own life, they performed above and beyond the call of duty. Excuse me, the call of duty. And so uh, on, on two different occasions, that recognition was given to General Butler, which is an incredible thing when you think about it. it just it, All of this is telling you about the character of this man. Very popular general with the soldiers, obviously a very brave man, won an awful lot of military awards, including those two Congressional Medals of Honor. So he was um, a well-known public figure by the time he retired from the Marines in 1931. Did you want to take it from there, Zach, and tell uh, a little yeah, bit about yeah, that? Yeah. So um, after his retirement, Butler was invited to give lectures around the country, which actually we have an audio clip that uh, we're going to play here in one second when I pull it up. So he would go around the world and he would give these lectures. This is just a short uh, little, uh, it's 48 seconds long, so it's a short clip. Uh, just kind of giving you an idea of, of what he talked about during his um, speeches and, the, and stuff. And the way he spoke. He was a very fiery speaker. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to play that right now. To be so damn mad, a whole lot of people speak of you as tramps. By God, they didn't speak of you as tramps in 1917 and 18. No. <laughs> let, me tell you, let me tell you something. I've been all over the world. I've seen you fellas on the streets in Washington. There isn't this well-behaved group of citizens in the world that's sitting right in this camp. Take it from me. This is the greatest demonstration of Americanism we have ever had. Pure Americanism. Willing to take this beating as you've taken it. Stand right steady. You keep every law. And why in the hell shouldn't you? Who in the hell has done all the bleeding for this country and for this law and and this constitution anyhow for two fellas. So um, I noticed actually in that little speech that he gave was part of what you said, one of his quotes yes. up there. Mm -hmm. um, and as um, you can almost kind of tell in his voice, he's very passionate about uh, what he's talking about. And I thought it was very funny when you were reading the quotes earlier. I was kind of thinking, I was like, hey, maybe he should read it, read it in his little raspy voice. I thought that would have been <laughs> hilarious if he did that. So... Um, in December of 1933, he toured the United States for the veterans of foreign war. Uh, he publicly attacked the Mer American Legion leadership and claimed they had sold out the veterans. He called for veterans to get the same breaks that the bankers and the industrialists were getting. So I'm assuming this is one of his quotes. I'm going to try, yes, try, and, read it, quote. try mm -hmm. and read it just like him. War is... All right, I'm not going to... I didn't War <laughs> is largely a matter of money. Bankers lend money to foreign countries. When they can't repay, the president sends in the Marines to get it. Butler called for compensation for disabled veterans. Uh, he went to 18 veterans' hospitals to visit the vets and see how they were being treated. Uh, he called for pensions for the widows and children of soldiers who were killed. Mm -hmm. He was angry that the disabled vets had been forgotten by their country. Uh, Butler became enormously popular among the veterans, uh, he was seen as the enlisted can't talk um, enlisted man's general. He was the only one fighting for them. Yeah, I'll just mention real quick, Zach. 
Um, the American Legion was one organization for military veterans, and then the Veterans of Foreign War was another one. General Butler did not like the leadership of the American Legion, and he was pretty open about that. He felt that they were just being used as tools of the big money people in the United States. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the uh, uh, companies in America, some large companies uh, that had um, labor issues, they had people, you know, um, uh, going on strike, agitating for better conditions or better pay or whatever, they would actually hire members of the American Legion and apply, uh, supply them with bats and, and clubs and actually have them go out and attack uh, strikers at particular plants. And General Butler thought that was an outrage. They were being used as a tool. You know, instead, of, instead of the country taking care of the veterans and providing for the veterans, and especially the disabled veterans, here you are, you're just arming them and using them as goons to go out and you know, protect your financial interests. And Butler felt that was a horrible thing, and that's why he had a real problem with the leadership of the American Legion, and that's going to come into this whole story now that we've led up to with this, uh, the business plot, this plot to seize the White House. Um, but the veterans of foreign war, he, he was definitely much more favorable with them, was close with their, their commander at that time, Van Sant, and that's why you, you'll see him going around the country speaking to the veterans of foreign war. I mean, that was the group that he wanted to really focus on and, and see them grow in membership because he thought that's the veterans group that's doing what it's supposed to do, lobbying for the veterans, lobbying for what they need. The American Legion leaders had opposed the veterans' bonus, just to give you an idea. of This yeah. is why Butler would be so angry. Here's Butler who went down and gave that fiery speech. And imagine how he felt looking at fellow veterans, but, you know, opposing the veterans' bonus that they were supposed to get at the height of the Depression when these men were suffering. So that's why I just wanted to mention that to you about uh, the difference between the American Legion and the veterans of foreign war at that time. Not today, but at that time. And that does that. So this leads up to the plot. We've talked about... President Roosevelt's New Deal programs that were upsetting many people in the country. They could be uh, just traditional conservative Americans, or they could be, you know, people with uh, substantial financial resources, wealthy people, very wealthy people, uh, captains of industry, the industrialists. So there was definitely uh, a lot of negatives and strong negative feelings, sometimes even hate-fueled feelings towards President Roosevelt among some of these people. So this leads us up to the story that we want to share with everyone from American history, and this goes, it will start on July 1st of 1933. An official from the American Legion actually called General Butler at his home. And at this point, he's living in Newtown Square in Pennsylvania, Chester County. And um, the, the, the leader from the American Legion informed him that, listen, there's two veterans who are going to be coming to your house to see you. They want to talk about some issues with the American Legion. And General Butler agreed. So, uh, Two men did eventually arrive at his home in a Packard car, and it was a chauffeur-driven car, which General Butler noticed right away. In his opinion, he was immediately suspicious. Most veterans didn't have the money to be driven around in chauffeur-driven cars, in his opinion. But the two men that came were uh, Bill Doyle, who was the commander of the American Legion in Massachusetts, and then a central character in this whole story, Gerald McGuire, who was a former commander of the American Legion in Connecticut, and he was a, a bond salesman. Uh, the two men went into General Butler's home and sat down with him and began to tell him how unhappy they were with the leadership of the American Legion. Now, he already had a problem with the leadership of the American Legion, so he was kind of listening to them. Um, and the National Convention for the American Legion was going to be coming up in some months in the future in Chicago. And they asked General Butler if he would come there and speak to the veterans there and, and help them push out this bad leadership. They called it the royal family. But Butler didn't really want to do that, number one, because he hadn't been invited to come. So why would he? He, didn't, he was very uncomfortable with the idea of going there. 
So it's two men, uh, you know, accepted his denial, his, his turning them down. And then they asked, can we come back and see you in a few weeks or maybe a month or so? And they did. They returned about a month later, uh, this Gerald Maguire and that Bill Doyle. And this time they had a new plan for him. And they told General Butler, here's our idea. You're going to pick about 200 to 300 members of the American Legion, World War I veterans, basically. We're going to take you all to Chicago by train for this American Legion convention that will be coming up in a few months. We're going to scatter these 200 to 300 men around the audience in the convention hall there. And then when you, General Butler, appear up in the spectators' gallery, you know, as a visitor to the convention, all of these men are going to start standing up and cheering and shouting. They're going to yell, you know, yell out for you to speak. They're going to try to put pressure on the people up on the stage there to let General Butler uh, speak. And so... General Butler was like, well, what exactly is it that I'm going to speak about if, I, if, if we were to do this thing, which he didn't like the idea of anyway. And they said, oh, don't worry, we have, a, we have a speech all ready for you. And McGuire actually pulled out a speech that had already been typed up. <laughs> and Butler was going through this speech, and one of the key parts of the speech was, this goes back to something we've, we've talked about a few minutes ago, it was going to be a call for the Legionnaires to pass a, revolution, a resolution calling on the United States to go back on the gold standard for our money. Now, Butler really didn't like this, and he was immediately suspicious about the motives behind this because to him it sounded like some wealthy people have gotten together and have come up with this idea, and they're going to try to use the American Legion now, this veterans organization, to pressure President Roosevelt to put the United States back on the gold standard for its currency. In addition to that, McGuire even told Butler that all the expenses for him and all of those 200 to 300 legionnaires would be covered, would be paid for. And he actually pulled out a bank book and showed uh, General Butler deposits that totaled about $106,000 at that time, which was a substantial amount of money in 1933 during the Depression. Yeah, I actually want to look that up real quick. I want to look up how much that was, so you can continue. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, in, in today's money. So uh, at this point, Butler is absolutely convinced that this plot is def there's, there's a plot uh, uh, there's a plot behind all of this and this is wealthy individuals and he was curious who exactly are these people that are behind all of this so he agreed to let mcguire and, and doyle come back and visit him on yet another visit and butler now wanted to see what kind of information he could wean out of these guys as he would continue to meet with them when mcguire came to visit butler for the third time he came alone uh to newtown square and Butler immediately started pressing him about what, you know, who are the sources for all of this money that we're talking about here? And McGuire actually told him that there were about nine bankers and the bankers had the best of motives. They wanted the veterans to get their bonus. Um, and he only provided one name at that point, Grayson Murphy, who was a very wealthy member of the American Legion. Matter of fact, he had been one of the founders of the American Legion and had uh, donated a substantial amount of money to get the, uh, the Legion started back in 1919. Um, Murphy was, just to mention this, uh, Murphy was um, a West Point graduate. He had been a World War I vet, and he had actually been on a visit to Italy and had been decorated with a medal by the Italian fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. Uh, this was something that didn't sit well with General Smedley Butler. Major General Smedley Butler of the United States Marine Corps thought that was a highly inappropriate thing that had happened to have had someone in the United States military, a veteran, being, you know, decorated by a fascist dictator in Italy. Um, 
Real quick, so I was able to, yeah. I was able to find out how much this one hundred six thousand dollars was equivalent to because a bunch of other stuff came up first mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So that's why it took me so long to find it. So one hundred six thousand dollars around nineteen thirty was equivalent to one point seven million dollars. Right, which is a it's lot substantial of money. money. Yeah, yeah, it's still substantial a, today. A very high amount of money, especially for someone who during this Great Depression time isn't seeing a lot of money like that. You know what I mean? Exactly. And this Gerald McGuire that we're talking about, this bond salesman from Connecticut that's now meeting with, with General Butler again. I mean, by his own testimony later, he was a, a bond salesman that was making, you know, something like $125 a week at the time. This is not his money. And Butler's quite aware of it. I mean, this is substantial amounts of money. And that's why Butler's trying to get, who exactly is it that you're representing? Who is it that, you know, behind all of this, that's providing all this money to pay all the expenses of 200 to 300 legionnaires plus General Butler going to Chicago, you know, the hotel cost and, and the food and all that. This is money. This is money that's, that's required. And that's why Butler knew there's something behind this. And these are people with, with big money. So anyway, Butler still would not agree to go to this convention, didn't go along with this whole idea of, you know, me handpicking 200 to 300 veterans. And Butler had a uh, scheduled speech to give up in Newark, New Jersey, in um, September of 1933, it was an American Legion convention, not for the entire country. It wasn't a national convention. It was, you know, a local, a more local convention for one area of the American Legion. And who would show up in General Butler's uh, hotel room? <laughs> it was uh, Gerald McGuire, the bond salesman from Connecticut. Again, he seemed to know where General Butler was at all times, according to General Butler. So McGuire starts in again with uh, General Butler about, you got to go to Chicago. You got to do this speech. We got to bring people. And at one point, he actually pulled out 18, according to General Butler's testimony, 18 individual $1,000 bills and just kind of scattered them on the bed there to show uh, General Butler, look, they've got the money. I can show you lots of money. You know, we can, we're going to pay for all of this. That didn't go over too well with General Butler either. And he made it very clear to McGuire, you want me involved in anything about speaking at the Legion Convention or whatever, I got to meet the people that are behind this whole idea. I want to meet the principals behind this. Who are the people giving you all these $1,000 bills and the bank deposit book that you showed me? I need to know who all this is. So about a week later, General Butler uh, did have a visitor who called him ahead of time to tell him he was coming by train, and that was a banker from New York, Robert Clark. And General Butler actually picked him up at the train station and brought him back to his home. So Clark was sitting in... Uh, General Butler's home in Newtown Square and was telling him that uh, we really need you to go to Chicago for this American Legion convention and I'm going to arrange for it that you and I will ride there together in a private train car. And Butler started asking Clark questions about all of this stuff, including that speech that McGuire handed me. It was already typed up, you know. Who wrote that speech? And uh, Clark told Butler that the author of that speech was actually a man by the name of John Davis, who Butler knew right away because John Davis had been the Democratic nominee for president of the United States in the 1924 presidential campaign. Davis was now a chief attorney for the J.P. Morgan and Company up in, in New York City, so he had certainly switched around. Butler was stunned because, the, you know, he was just stunned that the Democratic nominee was the guy that actually wrote up the speech about returning to the gold standard and all of that. So, um Clark got nowhere in his arguments with Butler about going to the convention. Butler just told him, there's no way I'm going. So while Clark was still standing there in Butler's home in Newtown Square, he asked Butler if he could use the phone, and he actually called McGuire. McGuire was in Chicago at that point, and Clark told him, you already have enough money, send those telegrams. And General Butler was standing there listening to this whole thing because he let him use his phone. And what happened was, at the American Legion convention then, 
which was held shortly after this, thousands of telegrams suddenly poured into the convention, urging all the delegates and all the leaders of the American Legion at the convention to pass this resolution to return the country to the gold standard. And the convention did. They actually did endorse the resolution to return the country to the gold standard. So even though General Butler never gave in and didn't go to that convention, the people behind this plot got their way. They got the American Legion to push that gold standard uh, resolution through, and they were hoping that that would put pressure on President Roosevelt and Congress to, you know, to restore the country to that, uh, to that standard. And then what's very interesting, and I really want to stress this with everybody, shortly after all that convention was over, Gerald McGuire and his entire family, his wife and his kids, they all left for a seven-month trip to Europe. Uh, and that is a key part of this entire story behind the plot here. They left on December 1st, a seventh-month, all-expenses-paid trip to Europe. And that's going to be revealed now as we go through the, the steps that uh, unfold here in the plot to seize the White House. That has an important uh, part in this whole story. One other thing I wanted to mention, if you want to read this, Zach, this is um, this part here. This is a very interesting story, and it does, again, play into exactly the character of General Butler and what was going on here behind the scenes. So if you want to read that part right there. So on December 11th, 1933, Val O'Farrell, mm-hmm. a former New York City police detective who became a private investigator, wrote a letter to President Roosevelt's secretary, um, chief of staff, uh, Lewis Howe. He told Howe that Butler had been offered $750 per speech by a representative of the Banker Gold Group system uh, if he would push for the gold standard to be restored. Uh, he told Howe... Butler had refused to do this, and that even though he did not personally know Butler, he sure was a man of exceptional character. So that just kind of goes to show that other people would do stuff for a big lump sum of money. I mean, definitely in this time when $750 was definitely went a long way compared to, I mean, $750 now, but it's not equivalent. Um, Especially in a time of depression like this, I, I probably couldn't, think of anyone who wouldn't accept that right so uh butler went on a speaking tour in the united states for the vfw regarding recruiting members to the vfw and pushing for the veterans bonus uh demagogues is that how you say that yes mm -hmm. (laughs) in the united states backed with the money from question mark uh led patriotic crusades we don't know it's it's that group again it's that group again yeah um, against the communists and Jews and Jewish bankers who are behind the New Deal of FDR. So in June of 1934, uh, New Deal legislation stopped farm foreclosures and stopped employers from hindering unionization efforts. Um, the July 1934 edition of Fortune magazine uh, dedicated the entire issue to Italian fascism glorifying the successes of Mussolini and the fascists. So, McGuire returned from Europe, and on August 22, 1934, he asked Butler to meet with him again at the Bellevue Hotel in Philadelphia. This man is very persistent. He does not give up. He's very Um, persistent. McGuire told Butler that he had spent seven months in Europe per instructions from his backers. Uh, His job was to study the role of veterans, veterans organizations in bringing about dictatorship in different countries like Germany and Italy. Uh, Maguire was very impressed with the French veteran veterans group 
the Croix du Feu. Very good. Very good. <laughs> 500,000 members from the ranks of officers and non-commissioned officers. They had helped put down a general strike in France. McGuire also said that his group of backers, who paid all of his expenses for those seven months, wanted to build an American version of the Croix de Feu. <laughs> the purpose of this organization was to stop FDR from disrupting the American financial system. The par, par, paramilitary, paramilitary organization would be used to compel FDR to do their bidding. They wanted an army of 500,000 veterans. Now, publicly, uh, the organization would state that they were trying to support the president and help him with the burdens of his office, but they would create a new position for an assistant president, the Secretary of General Affairs. Um, the president would become more of a figurehead, and this secretary would actually run the country. Right, and it was Butler. The whole point of all of this is, is that it was Butler they wanted to be the head of a 500,000, a half a million man army of veterans that would uh, take to the streets, go to Washington, and put tremendous pressure on Roosevelt to either step aside or to become nothing more than a figurehead. The things that you were mentioning there are very important, too. There were any number of organizations springing up all across the United States with these, demagog these uh, demagogues that were getting up there. And if you read some of what they were saying, their attacks on, on Jews and their attacks on Jewish bankers and all that, they were very much mimicking what was going on in Nazi Germany and what had been done in Hitler's rise with his stormtroopers, um, in, in, in Germany that he eventually did take over in 1933. Uh, and it, what's fascinating here is that a seven months in Europe is a very expensive proposition for someone to go with his entire family, all expenses paid. This was a very serious research trip. McGuire's job was to go over there and study all of these different organizations. And, and he went to a number of different European countries. And the point was, you know, study what did the veterans organizations do in each of these countries? How did they contribute to and help and enable whoever it was that was rising to power, Hitler in Germany or Mussolini in, in France, or excuse me, Mussolini in Italy, um, you know, see what the role of that was because we want to use that as a model back here in the United States when we form our own stormtrooper army, basically. And we want the most popular military leader in the United States, a guy who's a fiery speaker and who's a man known for integrity and honesty and bravery, General Smedley Butler. We want him to be the guy that's going to lead this army him to be the guy that's going to become this Secretary of General Affairs with the intention that they would control his every move. They would have him completely under their control and would be running the government. That's the plot to seize the White House, that they were going to be doing this. Um, at that point, at the Bellevue Stratford, I mean, Butler just bluntly asked McGuire, like, um, how are you going to fund this? I mean, 500,000 men is a lot of men. 500,000 vets that you want, you know, in this, this army of stormtroopers in America here, uh, that's going to take some money. And McGuire told him, we already have $3 million set aside for this. We can get up to $300 million if we need be, based on the financial resources of all of those people that were backing all of this, the people that backed McGuire going over to Europe and studying these organizations. So that $3 million is equivalent to $49 million mm -hmm. today. And... $300 million <laughs> would be worth $4.9 billion today. Yeah. That's a tremendous amount of money. <laughs> that is a ridiculous <laughs> amount of money. They, they were putting... Uh, they, they were, were serious about They were definitely putting money out on this. What and they, they wanted were, to do here. Yeah. Butler had bluntly asked uh, McGuire, too, about, like, you know, all these 500,000 veterans you want. I mean, these guys have families. They have expenses. You know, it's, it's 
you know, they have to be able to survive and take care of their bills and all that. Uh, do you plan on paying these guys? That had already been thought of, too. And, and McGuire told him without any hesitation, oh, yeah, the privates in the uh, in this stormtrooper army will get, you know, $10 a month and the captains will get $35 a month. And that that banker, Robert Clark, that banker that had gone to General Butler's home in Newtown Square and had met with him and had talked to him, uh, that he had pri- uh, had promised $15 million. And the rest of the money would be raised from other people in the group, the group of bankers, uh, most of whose names were never revealed. So that's where we're at at this point now. They've, they've pretty much laid their cards on the table. An interesting thing about this McGuire guy was he seemed to know a lot of things that were going on behind the scenes. And that impressed General Butler very much and convinced him of, this is not just some goofy guy you know, coming up with some half-baked scheme. I mean, he threw all those $1,000 bills on the bed in the hotel room in Newark. Uh, He showed me the bank book with all these deposits. This guy is the real deal. He seems to be representing a group of people who have money. And what's worse is they have an idea of what they want to do with this money, which is basically stage a fascist fascist, uh, takeover of the government of the United States. Without saying so, they'd rather have a great figurehead like General Butler, who is considered the ultimate patriotic American soldier and general, you know, be the leader that they can uh, use in order to get the the good publicity and to allay any fears people might have. And uh, it's it's a um, it's an incredible period in American history when you think about it. What happened here, and that's really why we decided to even do this topic. This is an incredible thing that happened here. The fact that you actually had Americans willing to even talk about doing such a thing. I mean, it's not like just some, you know, cocktail party, you know, they're sitting around drinking. I mean, these guys are talking about spending money, millions of their own personal fortunes in order to get their way and get the United States back to where they want it to be. When you mentioned the Fortune magazine thing, Fortune magazine was extremely popular with the captains of industry, the big financial people in the United States. To actually dedicate an entire issue of that magazine, every single article, the entire magazine in that issue was all about fascist Italy and how things were working under the fascist government and Benito Mussolini, the dictator in Italy, and how they were working so well. You can see people were starting to consider the possibility of, hey, maybe fascism isn't so bad. I mean, look what it's doing in Italy. You know, and that was one of the things that McGuire said to General Butler when he came back. He said, I looked at all these groups. I looked at what happened in Germany with the Nazis, and I looked in Italy, and I looked in France. We know that in America... American vets aren't going to go along with the type of things that were done in, in, in Nazi Germany or in fascist Italy. The French, is, the, the, the French group is the one that we think would be the best model for us. And what, what was the one thing he pointed out? Yeah, they helped to break up you know, a big national strike that was crippling yeah. the country's economy. Just like the industrial powers had used the American Legion members with bats and clubs to mm-hmm. break up strike breakers here in America. So that was why they picked that particular French organization as, quote-unquote, the model. This is the model for our stormtrooper not that they want to use the word stormtrooper either, but, you know, our citizens' army that we're going to raise here and have General Butler lead on a white horse. Uh, but I did. I just want to mention this real quick because these were. it was pretty interesting that um, McGuire seemed to have really good inside information about things going on in Washington, D.C. And, and, and at the highest levels of government. One of the things he did tell General Butler at this meeting was, you know, you're not the only guy that some of these big money people are looking at to lead this army or to be that that, you know, that new type of president, that secretary of general affairs, there's some other people being looked at. So uh, one of the things, uh, one of the, some of the people in the group, according to McGuire, actually favored more that General Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur, who had led the American troops to drive out the bonus army veterans in Washington back in 1932. Some of them kind of liked him. They thought maybe he would be more 
of a controlled person, not that loose cannon that, that Smedley Butler was known to be. And Butler immediately told him, like, I don't know about why anyone would consider MacArthur because of what he did to those bonus veterans. And he said, you know, currently, uh, you know, MacArthur is the Army Chief of Staff. That was his position in Washington. And McGuire um, told him, yeah, I don't think, you know, MacArthur is going to be a serious candidate. He's not going to be the one they choose because he's going to be reappointed as a chief, Army Chief of Staff in Washington. And Butler said, I find that hard to believe. In the history of the United States, no one has ever been appointed to more than one term as Army Chief of Staff. That's that's not something that's happened. Several weeks later, sure enough, MacArthur was reappointed as... Uh, <laughs> and Butler took note of these things. He took note of that and thought, wow, McGuire knew that. And he was right on that. McGuire also talked about another man uh, that some of these wealthy people preferred over General Butler. And that was a man named Hanford McNider. He had been the former commander of the American Legion, that veterans group in the United States. And Butler pointed out to McGuire, well, he would be a strange choice for you guys to try to go after to lead this, you know, army of veterans because he was publicly against the veterans bonus. That's going to be a real drawback. And McGuire told him, oh, don't worry about that. In a couple of weeks, you're going to see McNider make a public uh, statement and he's going to take a public stand in support of the bonus. Three weeks later, McNider did exactly that same thing. McGuire was very tight in. He was, he was definitely getting very good information from whoever it was that he was representing these people, these movers and shakers with the big money were giving him very solid information. And general Butler said that was another thing that convinced him of this guy's the real deal. He knows he's got the money. The money is really there. And he knows an awful lot about stuff that I can't believe he's making these predictions. The final prediction that, that uh, McGuire made to general Butler there at the Bellevue was that Al Smith, who had been the governor of New York before Franklin Roosevelt, Democrat from New York city. Uh, he had been the rep- the Democratic Party's presidential nominee in the presidential election of 1928. He was the one that ran against Herbert Hoover. And McGuire told Al Smith, here's a little info that you may not know, uh, or told General Butler, here's a little info about Al Smith you might not know. He's going to come out and attack Roosevelt publicly, and he's going to attack this whole New Deal program as radical. And General Butler said, I can't believe the Democratic nominee, who actually campaigned for Roosevelt in the 1932 election, is going to do such a thing. And just a couple of weeks later, Al Smith publicly went after uh, President Roosevelt, criticized him severely, criticized the New Deal, and actually uh, sided with the Republicans in the, in the uh, 1936 election against President Roosevelt. So McGuire, the big money people backing him, they sure knew what they were talking about. They had an awful lot of insider information yeah. all across the board here. And that's, that's that, all of that, I mentioned those things. They may not sound important individually, but these were factors that influenced General Butler very much in his dealings with McGuire. He became more and more determined to find out who are these guys, who are these people, because they're traitors. You know, they're, they're trying to actually destroy democracy in the United States. Now, McGuire had also told uh, Butler at the Bellevue there that there would be an announcement of a new organization in the United States, and this was going to be the organization that was going to be really the powerhouse behind this 500,000-man army that they wanted to build, and that this would be the front. This would be the front organization, and this would be the organization through which they would be getting the guns and supplying the funds for the 500,000-man army. And sure enough, within just a few weeks, newspapers across the country announced that the new organization, the American Liberty League, had been formed with the primary goal of combating radicalism in the United States. And who was the treasurer of this American Liberty League? Gerald Maguire's own boss, uh, his, his, uh, his boss, 
was the actual treasurer, and then a number of the men on the uh, in the organization in leadership positions or in the, you know in the uh, different official capacities were people like from the J.P. Morgan Company, the Dupont Corporation, and many other major American corporations. Uh, this was the super organization that McGuire had predicted would be announced, and here was Butler reading about it all all in the newspapers, uh, just once again confirming Butler's worst suspicions that this is real, this is really going on, and um, I got to get all the information I can so I can go to the government and expose this thing before it succeeds, yeah. before, it really, you know, before it really gets to take off. So you can, if you want, Zach, you can pick it right yeah. from there. All right, so Butler then decided to call the commander of the VFW, uh, Van Zant, and told him that he needed to be, that he had been approached to lead a coup uh, with Veterans Army. Um, Butler also talks about with the city editor of Philadelphia Record newspaper and tells him the story and asks him to put a star reporter on this story and see if he can get confirmation of this plot. Uh, reporter Paul French is assigned. Meanwhile, rumors started circulating in Washington about the American Legion going to be the nucleus of a fascist army that would seize the capital. In Congress, the McCormick uh, Dickstein Committee, Dickstein, yeah, Dickstein, um, was investigating communist and fascist activities within the United States. They heard these rumors, and one of their investigators contacted Butler and asked if he knew anything about these rumors. Uh, the reporter Paul French had met with McGuire and did his own investigation, and it backed up everything Butler had said. On November 20th, 1934, the committee heard General Butler's testimony in a secret session in New York City. They also heard Paul French's testimony. He backed up everything Butler said. French also testified that McGuire had told him that arms for this super army would be provided from the Remington Arms Company uh, through the DuPonts who controlled it. McGuire told French... We need a fascist government to save the United States from communists. So, um, with that, with the whole Remington thing, it's just crazy to me how, again, money makes people go crazy. These people are, are so money-hungry, and, and they want this plan to be uh, fulfilled that any amount of money is is nothing to them. They'll pay whatever it takes to, to get this plan to go through. Exactly. What's really important here is you remember we talked about uh, General Butler when he was director of public safety in Philadelphia and most newspapers criticized him. That's why Butler went to the city editor of the Philadelphia Record. That was the one newspaper, and he knew this from his personal, you know, personal uh, firsthand experience with them, uh, that this was the paper he could approach. Butler did not want to go to anybody in the government yet. What did he have as far as evidence or any kind of corroboration of what he would tell them? Most of these meetings were one-on-one sessions with McGuire, I mean, there's all this information, and yes, Butler was a man of, of, you know, was greatly respected for his integrity and his courage, his military service of over 33 years in the Marine Corps, but he was hoping that by going to the Philadelphia Record, they would assign a reporter that would be able to do his own investigation and then corroborate what Butler was saying. That would give him a little bit more of a comfort level, you know, in order to approach anyone in the government to say, I, I, I want to tell you about this, and Here's somebody else that can tell you the same thing that's done the digging on his own. That reporter that was chose, uh, chosen, Paul French, he had covered much of Butler's work in Philadelphia when he served as the director of public safety. So Butler knew who he was, too. French did meet with McGuire on his own, and he did basically get all the same information from McGuire 
that General Butler had gotten. He had already been tipped off. You know, Butler had provided all the info for that editor and for the reporter, but he was able to actually confirm that, yes, all of this was this was very much... Uh, I think the phrase that uh, McGuire used from the one point was that what we need is a dictator on a white horse, and we want Butler. Yeah. We want Butler, but we want... You know, we do need a fascist government if we're going to save the United States. So um, this committee, uh, the McCormack and uh, Dickstein committee, those were the two congressmen in, in charge of the committee, this was really the House Un-American Committee as it existed at that time. I think it's very interesting that Butler never got to that committee first or anybody else. The committee sent one of their own investigators, and they had a team of them working on these rumors. They were investigating, like you said, other things, communist infiltration in some areas of the country or fascist activities from Germany or Italy that were being carried out here in the United States. But rumors were circulating in Washington about this idea of a fascist army, this huge veterans army that was going to be formed and armed and descend on Washington, D.C. So the committee, as a result of of hearing these rumors, that's why they began to look into this themselves. And that's why they had their investigators out there, you know, trying to find out, is there anything to all of these rumors that are going on? And of course, Butler's name came up, and that's why that investigator approached Butler. That's why Butler was then called to... uh, testify before the hearing that the committee hearing was held in New York city because it was a, a secret or a closed hearing. It means it's not open to the public. And this was uh, this was to protect everybody that was call- being called in before them. So they did um, have general Butler come in and he did tell them everything. And then French was sitting right there by him. And then French, you know, gave his testimony as well, which was corroborating everything that Butler had told the committee, everything that Butler had experienced in all his dealings with McGuire. Now, McGuire was called before the committee, too. And I don't think anyone should be surprised. He denied everything that was being said <laughs> by either General Butler or by, uh, by French, the reporter from the Philadelphia Record. He denied everything. He had lots of memory lapses. I don't recall. I can't say. Uh, but the committee, you know held him to the fire because they had their own team of private investigators that they had used. The committee had gotten hold of bank records. When McGuire at one point had tried to deny that uh, he had gone to Europe for seven months as anything other than a family vacation, which would be an amazing family vacation for anybody, seven months at that time. But the committee was able to just cut him short because they had copies of the correspondence that he had been sending back to his boss, reporting on all these veterans organizations in all these different countries, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, in France, Holland, he was going around. So his denials really, they just fell on deaf ears because the committee already had evidence. They were asking you questions and really just waiting for you to confirm what they already knew what they already knew, like a good prosecutor would do. And uh, McGuire's uh, had several sessions with him, and he just did not come off well, didn't do a very good, ide- a very good idea. One of the things that Congressman McCormick, he would go on to become a Speaker of the House of Representatives, you know, some years in the future. Uh, one of the things he did point out uh, when the committee was, uh, you know, doing their research here, doing the, doing the uh, accepting the testimony of the witnesses and all that, was that the committee had received information about this plot this plot to seize the White House, this plot to overthrow President Roosevelt from several different sources, and that General Butler was not the first source that they had had. That's why they approached him. They already had information they were gathering, and then they went to approach him. And another interesting thing to point out, and this is very key, uh, that commander of the VFW that we talked about earlier, Van Sant, that General Butler had called, he had told him all about this guy, you know, they're trying to 
get me to lead this army of vets and all that. They approached Van Sant at one point too, and he testified before the committee that his term was agents of Wall Street had approached him to lead a fascist dictatorship, to lead that 500,000 man army and then to, the, the plot to overthrow the White House, you know, to take over as that uh, really a replacement president for Roosevelt. So there was yet another confirmation of what General Butler was saying. Other than those witnesses, really, there was lots of names. There were some names that Butler had provided for them of some of the names that McGuire had you know, dropped in front of him. The problem here was the committee was looking at that as sort of like, this is hearsay evidence. We don't really have yeah. evidence of this. So no other witnesses were really called at that point. But of course, when that became public knowledge, the rumors just spread all over that, well, of course, people with money, they know how to get out of being in a position of being subpoenaed to appear. You know, they were able to get out of this. They're just a little bit too powerful once again, newspapers across the country disgraced themselves. They ridiculed General Butler and the reports on the committee hearings. Um, Time magazine did a really, just a really nasty piece on him, a parody of him, making fun of him. Uh, once again, because, quite frankly, like in Philadelphia, many of these newspapers were really owned by corporate enterprises, yeah. corporate sponsorship, you know, uh, big money people. And so they weren't about to give General Butler any kind of credibility or any kind of praise in what was going on. So uh, they were tools of big money, and that was just the way, unfortunately, that it turned out. So the McCormick-Dickstein Committee submitted the official findings, their official report on this investigation of the plot to seize the White House to the United States House of Representatives in Congress on February 15th of 1935. I think these key points, key findings that the committee reported in their written report to Congress was that there was evidence, definitely there was evidence that certain persons in the United States had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in America. There was no evidence showing that these efforts had any connection with any of the fascist governments in Europe, such as Nazi Germany or fascist Italy. So this was an American product from beginning, you know, there was, this was not something that was being funded and financed from outside the United States by any of the fascist governments over in Europe. And very key point, the key point, in my opinion, there was no question that these uh, attempts were discussed and planned and might have been placed in execution if the financial backers had actually gone ahead. The committee was able to verify all the pertinent statements made by General Butler. General Butler was totally vindicated by this congressional committee had listened to the testimony and had gathered evidence on their own, let alone listen to the testimony of General Butler, you know, and the reporter French and that and, that, uh, and Mr. McGuire. And so Butler uh, was believed. They believed it and they did think that there was evidence. That's their own words. There was evidence about this plot. So today there are some people that kind of downplay it. And when I was a, I'll tell everyone right now, when I was a boy in, in high school or college, you know, American history classes, I had never heard about this at all. It wasn't something I was even taught about. Oh, yeah, neither was I. Uh, and that's kind of a shame because this is a, an incredible thing that happened. We don't know all the names. We don't know how many people were the financial backers behind this plot to seize the White House. But here is the Congressional Committee's findings based on all the evidence and testimony. It was real. There really was a plot. And these people really were talking about uh, forming a 500,000-man army of basically American stormtroopers that were going to be used to push President Roosevelt out of office or make him just a figurehead and then put their own person into that new position they were going to create. And that person, as McGuire explained to General Butler in great detail, he's going to be running the day-to-day -day operations of this government. 
His job is going to, he's the real president. The person we put in there is that secretary. He's going to be the real power. He's going to be the real president and he'll be controlled by the people that put him into power, the people that have the money behind the scenes. A, uh, a sad thing to say that after all this work was done, all this investigation, all this evidence was amassed, uh, a committee can investigate, they can put out all the information, a congressional committee such as this one here, the McCormick-Dickstein Committee, but they can't prosecute anyone. Prosecution is strictly the, the decision made by the United States Attorney General and the Department of Justice. And sad to say, no one was ever prosecuted regarding this plot to seize the White House. Uh, there's different theories about why not. I mean, number one is because you were dealing with some very powerful people with a lot of money. Were they able to, behind the scenes, wield pressure against certain political leaders in Washington to try to squelch this whole thing and just let it you know, kind of die or whatever? But um, it's sad because the evidence uncovered by the committee showed there had been a conspiracy. Here's an example of a conspiracy that wasn't just a rumor or some you know half-baked idea. There's all kinds of conspiracy theories floating around today. But here was, here's... One of the primary reasons we want to do this, this is, an, uh, this is an example of an actual conspiracy that was real. There was real money behind this. There were real people operating behind the scenes. They were trying to pull something off that was incredible, basically a fascist dictator of, of, of the United States, and um, it was a real conspiracy. Um, there's a quote that goes around, I would just mention that, some people always say this was Thomas Jefferson that said that, but actually, if you look it up, no one can really prove that Thomas Jefferson ever said this. But if there's anything I would want anyone to take away from this, this presentation we just did on this plot to seize the White House, uh, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And that's probably more true today than it was even back then. Right now, with everything that we're facing today, everything that we're facing as Americans today, eternal vigilance is really necessary right now. And hopefully this podcast will contribute to helping people stay eternally vigilant with other stories like this where we can, you know, give you information, give you historical data like this, an incredible story and show that, hey, this actually almost happened. Can't explain why you don't hear about it in the history classes that we all took in high school or in college or whatever, but it really did happen. The evidence is there. The congressional record certainly has these records from the committee. And if you stop and think about it, that's an astounding thing at a time when this world, uh, especially the Western world and in Europe, was being torn apart and there were so many fascists coming into power in Spain and Italy and in, and in uh, Germany. And then you had fascist movements in the other countries in Europe. Well, we weren't exactly immune to that. Here we were in the United States. We now know that there were some people plotting secretly a conspiracy uh, to use their money and do whatever it took to build their own army and to take control of our own government uh, and uh, basically overthrow democracy as we know it here in America. And we do hope everyone enjoyed this overview yeah. of all the, I know it's a lot of information and maybe I, you know, I, I thought I'll, we talked a lot about what we should include in all this, but I just thought it was important to show that this was the real deal. This really was an honest to God conspiracy. I, I couldn't really cut out any of that. I thought it would take away from yeah. it if we didn't give you, I know it's a lot of info, but the bottom line was, is that there was an honest to God conspiracy to do this and the evidence is there. And the members of Congress that investigated this at that time saw the evidence, saw the testimony, uh, and accepted it, and realized that, my God, this really did happen. Luckily, that stopped it. With all the publicity, one of the theories is that President Roosevelt, who, as we saw, had received that information from that private investigator in in New York way back in 1933 about General Butler. Uh, President Roosevelt might have been the one that, you know, ultimately had said, you know what, they've been exposed. They're not going to pull off anything now. We got all these other problems with the Depression going on right now and with, you know, 
war clouds starting to gather in Europe. Uh, let's just drop it. And that, to me, would probably be the most logical explanation for why President Roosevelt's attorney general and the Department of Justice never did seek any prosecution of any of the individuals that were known, like Mr. McGuire, for example, yeah. to be involved. I feel like a lot of them were on a payroll, though, like especially with something like this, like for them to not uh, like prosecute anybody. Somebody had to be on on some sort of payroll, especially with the amounts of money that they were claiming that they they could spend with this. And um, and it is interesting because, like Mark said, this isn't something you learn in high school and something I didn't learn in high school. And Mark was in high school years and years and years and years. Okay, that's enough years. (laughs) We had electricity before you ask me. Before I was. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it, it's just a weird thing. Like, we learned about a bunch of different things in high school, and, and this seems like something of at least mild importance in, in history. Uh, these people were trying to, to overthrow, essentially, the government and, and become fascist. And I think it would be definitely a different world that we live in today if this had gone to plan. And I think that... Maybe if they chose someone that wasn't uh, Smedley Butler, uh, that it, it could have possibly gone a completely different way. I think that if they chose maybe someone who wasn't as, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, like for the people as, as Smedley Butler was and was more uh, conceited and, and money hungry in a time where money wasn't something that you came across a lot. You know what I mean? Exactly. Because it was the Depression. I think that it could have definitely gone in a completely different direction yeah. and the world at well the United States as we know it now could be com- could have been completely different than it is and I think that's just it's crazy to me to think that because I mean it was almost 100 years ago that this this occurred I mean they went and they they tried and they used all the money and I, I do. I think that people were on the payroll, and that's yeah. why these people were never prosecuted. Um, and with the quote, um, the eternal vigilance, um, we do want this to obviously uh, open your your eyes and, and make you realize that not everything is what it seems, or open your third eye, as some people would call it, um, and just become more aware of, of your surroundings and what's going on and and wherever you're at you know not everything is always what people make it out to be and that's why we encourage everybody and i say this every episode to do their own research on these types of things because you never know what's true and what's false until you come to your own conclusion about what you think about a certain topic so with that being said i do want everyone to be vigilant. I want to, you know what I mean? We want this to be an eye-opening experience for you. We want it to be a stress-free zone. We want you to obviously think, and we want to rack your brain and have you converse with us yes. about these topics. So that's really all I have to say. Yeah, the last thing I would just say is thank God for General Smithley Butler. Um, I think that's someone that all of us, no matter what our station in life is no matter what our political views are, our religious views, all of us as Americans, thank God that he was there. He's a hero in my book. He's a hero in my book. These people with money, however large it was, and I know some historians say, well, maybe it wasn't that big of a plot. Maybe it was not. I don't care if it was only a handful of people. These guys were willing to put millions of dollars into arming veterans 
to go against our own government, our own elected leaders. I mean, what good are our elections if we're going to just overturn them with, you know, with violence? And they had shown willingness to use veterans with baseball bats and clubs to break up strike breakers. It's not that far of a, of a you know, of a, of a, of a catch from there, you know, or a far of a leap from there that, you know, to think that oh, they would be willing to even arm them and, and do more than just, you know, uh, hit strike breakers or civil rights demonstrators. They also used to attack them with American Legion veterans, some of those guys. Um, it's not that far of a stretch. So thank God that Butler, General Smedley Butler, put a stop to that notion of him being made a dictator. And thanks to his efforts after that, he stopped anyone else from becoming a fascist dictator in this country. Uh, he is certainly someone that I think more Americans should know about. I think he should be some someone who is taught in our schools at whatever level today. I think it's just it's just an American hero in my book. And, uh, you know, this story should get everybody pause. There was an honest-to-God conspiracy that almost, that was certainly intent on overthrowing our elected government here in the United States, and particularly overthrowing the president, the elected president, and establishing a dictatorship. That's something that should give us pause, a very big pause. Right here in the United States, as the committee said, there was no foreign money behind this. There was no foreign government, you know, doing any, any involvement with these people. These were Americans planning to do this in America to our way of American government. So it's a great, it's, it's an interesting story, and it's one we should all be aware of. And uh, thank God for General Butler. He is my hero. <laughs> He's definitely a hero to me. And I'm so glad that fighting Quaker, that fighting Quaker never compromised, never gave in as a Marine, as an officer, as a general, as the you know, director of public safety in Philadelphia. Whatever he did, he never compromised. He was a fiery man, as you heard from that little excerpt from his speech to the bonus veterans. And this is something for us all to keep in mind. We must be vigilant. Let's, I hope this story will inspire everybody to not give up hope. We've got to be vigilant. We've got to stick together. And like General Butler, we have to be people of honor and courage and uh, not compromise on the things that are most important. We've got, to, we've got to stick to our guns on these things. Yeah, real quick, my last little thing about this. Coming into this, I didn't think that this whole thing to overthrow the, the government was as organized as came to be in, yeah, in the research. Um, I thought it was just going to be a bunch of people who said, hey, let's let's just kind of band together and and do this. Mm-hmm. But instead, it was money-driven, and it was the people of, of higher power, these rich people who wanted this to be done for obviously the sake of themselves because these people are self-centered and they only care about their money. So that's that's why they did it. But I really only thought that it was just people coming together, just like a real quick kind of, let's let's do this and get Smedley Butler. You know what I mean? I thought it was just going to be very quick and not as organized <laughs> as, as it was. So It's quite a story. Yeah. All right. Well, with that That's being it. said, thank you guys for watching. Uh, you can find us on all of our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Uncle Mark's Attic. And if you're interested, we do have a TikTok I've said this every episode. I'm not sure how often we're going to use it, but we're going to try and use it as often as possible. And another thing I just want to bring up real quick. Uh, if you heard my my phone notifications go off during the, the, the podcast, it is because I'm still trying to get used to the, the roadcaster. And I usually do have my phone on silent, but I guess for the roadcaster, if someone calls you or something like that, it doesn't keep it on silent. So for future reference, I will be putting my phone on do not disturb and it will it will not go off for for the next podcast that we do for future reference. Um, but with that being said, I just want to bring this up like I do every episode. Got to reach back farther. This is our uh, mascot. We do not have a name for him. Um, <laughs> if you've seen the first couple episodes before this, obviously you know we're going to be doing a poll with the 
couple names that have the most likes or the name that's brought up the most. So if you want to give him a name, feel free. Um, and he would love to be named and be a, finally a full part of this this podcast. So that's all I have to say about that. Well, thank you all for joining. We hope you did enjoy this. We hope you found it informative and um, interesting. And we hope to see you next time here in Uncle Mark's Attic. Good night now. Take care. <laughs>